welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Indigenous language translators are in short supply as thousands of migrants converge at the U.S.-Mexico border hoping for asylum. The language barrier potentially adds to the humanitarian crisis unfolding in places like Southern California and Texas. If U.S. policy eventually allows entry into the country, U.S. officials may not be prepared to adequately address those who don't speak English or Spanish. We'll learn more about indigenous languages at the U.S. border after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Canadian government says it will pay for a feasibility study of a landfill site in Winnipeg. The site is believed to hold the remains of two Indigenous homicide victims. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, Winnipeg police say it was not possible to search the site because of the passage of time and the 10,000 truckloads of garbage dumped in the area. When Winnipeg's police chief made that decision, there were calls for him to resign. He said he understood the pain and the sorrow people were feeling, but he would not step down. The Premier of Manitoba and the Mayor of Winnipeg both said operations at the landfill would be paused while officials mulled over their next steps. The remains are believed to be two of the victims of alleged serial killer Jeremy Skibicki. The 35-year-old is already facing four counts of first-degree murder. In Ottawa, Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller says the federal government would look into a feasibility study of the landfill. This is something where we are working with the city of Winnipeg Police Force, the province of Manitoba, and, and, and the mayor's office to make sure that we are having a coordinated approach with what is a very, very difficult situation for families looking for uh, perhaps even to recover remains of, of their lost ones. Meanwhile, Indigenous advocates say the arrest of Skibiki shows vulnerable women and girls are subject to dangerous outcomes if governments don't work together to end gender and race-based violence. The National Family and Survivors Circle says Indigenous women are disproportionate victims of violence in Canada due to unchecked racism and misogyny. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Wednesday marks the first recognition of National Ribbon Skirt Day in Canada. January 4th will now be an opportunity for people to celebrate and learn about Indigenous culture. A bill to recognize the day passed Parliament last month. The day raises awareness about injustices, racism and discrimination against Indigenous people. The day came about after First Nation youth was shamed at school for wearing a ribbon skirt. The Canadian government says it's working in partnership with Indigenous people to protect and promote their culture and traditions. Thunder Valley, a Lakota empowerment organization, has raised $100,000 for its next workforce development group to provide education, mentorship, and leadership opportunities. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's CJ Keene has more. The 10-month workforce program targets Native young adults unsure of their next steps in life. Lynette Killsback, Thunder Valley Workforce Development Director, says those entering the program will finish with a life skill. Like carpentry, plumbing, electricians, you know, to even get in the skill set, get even in, in that profession. Uh, I think it takes a special person to to learn that and help out people like, like me who don't know a lick of construction. Some contractors out there require at least 300 hours of on-hands training with, you know, the tools. Those are probably the main focus points that we help them get started with. Killsback says previous participants have found success. A lot of them are employable once they leave my program. Uh, so they get picked up by contractors, whether it be 
up there in Rapid City or wherever they go to. You know, we also have the Oglossu Tribal Housing Authority, where I currently have four of my past cohort participants who currently work for them. But Killsback says participation goes beyond learning trade skills. We also work on that individual as a whole. Holistically, uh, we help them um, learn the culture. So we teach them how to pray. Every morning we give thanks, we smudge each other off, we offer a prayer, um, and we get out started on with our day. The core participants, they have the opportunity to learn language, our Lakota language, uh, the opportunity to participate in our customs and practices, you know, like our sweat ceremony. Killsback says applicants include enrolled or eligible members of any federally recognized tribe between the ages of 18 and 26. For National Native News in Rapid City, I'm CJ Keen. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Thousands of migrants, many of whom seek asylum as they escape violence, abject poverty, and oppression, are currently halted at the U.S.-Mexico border. The lack of resources available to them is a serious life-and-death concern. Adding to the problem, many of those wanting humanitarian access to the U.S. do not speak English or Spanish. There are more than 60 indigenous languages spoken in Mexico and hundreds more across Central and South America where a significant number of the migrants come from. Indigenous advocacy groups are working to fill in the gaps and are preparing for the eventual influx of migrants who will have difficulty communicating their plea for asylum to U.S. officials. Coming up, we'll hear about immigration and indigenous languages and learn more about the scope of the pressure to provide adequate assistance to indigenous asylum speakers. You can join our discussion if you'd like. The number to call is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Leading us off today from Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Allegra Love. She's an attorney who specializes in working with asylum speakers and detention issues, immigration detention. Allegra, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi, Sean. Allegra, immigration, asylum seekers, the U.S. border, these are some of the most polarizing issues in the United States. And moreover, they're often framed in this kind of English-speaking versus Spanish-speaking context. What you're going to explain to us today, however, is that many migrants are indigenous and they speak neither English or Spanish. Yeah. I mean, it should come as no surprise to anyone that it's not just Spanish speakers who are coming to the U.S. border to seek protection and seek opportunity and asylum. Um, like you just mentioned in the lead up to this, hundreds of languages, indigenous, 
I mean, I should, it's also important to mention, like, Haitian Creole, because that's a huge issue on the border, um, are spoken throughout the Americas, and folks come come up, and um, there's this real gap in um, services and, like, enforcement of rights and protection of rights and orientation for people in their own preferred uh, native languages and it, it it can cause a lot of drama and it's something that, that is really not being addressed. It's something that causes um, life and death danger for the people who depend on understanding what's happening to them, what their situation is, and expressing accurately um, what they need in in their journey to the United States. Well, what happened? What, what does happen to these people, Allegra? I mean, they come here to the border. Uh, they're unable to communicate with U.S. officials. Perhaps they're unable to communicate with Mexican officials. So, how do they communicate? How are they able to advocate for themselves and and, and those that they travel with? Well, I mean, I think the, the hope is um, that you can that someone in your party might be able to act as an interpreter. Oftentimes, children. Are, are um, for example, like are a little more fluent in Spanish than their parents, and they might act as interpreters. Again, like our interpreters on the call will be able to explain this better. Um, what we find in detention, which is where I primarily work, is there are um, folks within the unit, like in their detention unit, who might be able to serve as an informal interpreter. I mean, for better or like the U.S. government on paper like does intend to provide language access and language justice in these situations. Um, I sort of, I regularly doubt the effort that actually goes into securing people, but even if they were putting in maximum effort in, you know, like custody situations during arrest with paperwork in court, um, in detention spaces, even if they were putting in maximum effort, the fact of the matter is like sometimes formal, interpreters in these language are not widely available and accessible to actually do the work. So you have a mixing of like the lack of availability of interpreters plus from my experience, the lack of effort and care and attention that officials are paying to this need and the sort of like lazy decision because of people's skin or their country of origin that they should just be receiving communication in Spanish. Allegra, do we have any idea just how many people currently stopped at the U.S.-Mexico border are indigenous and, and speak neither English or Spanish? No. I mean, we, we have no idea, but that's not simply because of discriminatory attitudes towards indigenous folks and indigenous language speakers. It's because we have no idea what's happening at all on the U.S. border right now because law and policy and regulation is just out of control. They're making it up as they go along at this point. And there's all like, you know, Congress, the president, now the Supreme Court are all like trying to create policy on the fly because of the fear of crisis when we open up the border. So to say that we don't know how many indigenous folks are in motion around the U.S. border right now, like doesn't even... Like it, it's just like a small part of the fact that we don't know about anything. Like it's impossible to capture the data because 
what's happening with Title 42 and the border closures and the total lack of regulation and accountability of what's going on is making it so that there, there's millions of people who are unaccounted for. And unfortunately, in that lack of accountability makes them extremely vulnerable, those spaces. You mentioned Title 42. Let's talk more about Title 42, and that's the the highly controversial public health order that was invoked by uh, former President Trump back in 2020, and it allows for the rapid expulsion of asylum seekers at the border. How is it impacting Indigenous folks there at the border, Allegra? Uh, uh, well, I mean, Sean, I just want to say, like, yes, President Trump invoked it in um, 2020 when at the start of the pandemic. But President Biden has continued it for almost two years. And so I often, I get one of the frustrations that I have with discussion of Title 42 is it's always attributed to Trump. I mean, President Biden could have lifted that order the first day he was in office. And the administration has chose not to. And when they chose to, has been like tangled up in this whole mess of legal problems. And they're actually expanding the use of it. So I think we need to attribute Title 42 to like an American or U.S. policy and not necessarily just like a Trumpian thing. But what it's doing is it's, it's preventing people with legitimate, cognizable need for protection from asking for asylum at the U.S. border. Um, th- th- some people are getting through, but there's no obligation anymore because of this order to acknowledge and process people's claims to political asylum. Now, in the Venn diagram of people who are asking for asylum, of course, indigenous folks often are people who are especially affected by policies and conditions in their countries who are, um, who, that um, make persecution something like a reality in their lives. And so mm-hmm. you have this like awful magnification of folks who may be, um, may have extraordinarily cognizable asylum claims because of their, um, the, the word is escaping me, because of their indigenous identity, it makes their asylum claims potential, potentially actionable. Yet they're also the people, because of their language access issues, who are having, who, who, who can't navigate this morass of nonsense that is happening at the border right now. Like I'm a trained attorney who's been doing this for 10 years and I can't articulate to people what their options are and how to navigate the system. So like someone who, you know, English is not even an option. Spanish is their second language and there's no materials or orientation widely available to them. It's, it's, it can be almost impossible. Okay. Okay. Let's go ahead and introduce our next guest on the show today. Joining us from Los Angeles, California is Odilia Romero. She's the co-founder and executive director of Cielo, an indigenous women-led nonprofit that serves indigenous populations in Los Angeles. She's Zapotec. Odilia, welcome to the show. And um, please tell us a little bit more about your organization. Hi, Um uh, what I said in my language is thank you for having me so we could share some words of what's going on with us as Indigenous people. Um, um, well, Cielo is a migrant, displaced Indigenous women-founded organization. We are based in Los Angeles, and 
one of our main goals um, is to serve indigenous displaced people here uh, across the U.S. We provide interpretation services across the nation with different law enforcement agencies, um, as well as some social services. But we also, you know, continue uh, the revi revitalization of our languages. We have cultural um, programs. We also have, um, you know, uh, 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 part of our work, it has to be decolonization um, of migration. So okay. in a nutshell, that's what we do. Yeah. Okay. Well, Odelia, earlier we heard Allegra, and um, she spoke of many of these migrants. They're stopped at the U.S. border, U.S.-Mexico border, and they speak neither English or Spanish. And I, I'd like to ask you to explain a little bit more uh, about what those folks face and, and the challenges that they encounter there uh, with regard to, to language. Uh, Allegra did share that some of them travel with children, and their children might be more fluent in Spanish and are able to communicate with officials if necessary. But we certainly want to learn more about what types of challenges those folks face at the border and some of the issues as well uh, surrounding indigenous folks there migrating into the United States, asylum seekers. And we're going to do that right after a short break. Anybody listening today who has a question or a comment, we are talking about Indigenous language speaking asylum seekers uh, there at the U.S. Mexico border. The number to call 1 800 996 Native American students are more likely to face severe discipline in some New Mexico schools. An investigative report finds the school district with the highest percentage of Native students in the nation is expelling them at a much higher rate than their peers. We'll learn more about school discipline in the next Native America Calling. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about indigenous languages in relation to the humanitarian crisis unfolding on the U.S.-Mexico border. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. We have Odelia Romero on the line in Los Angeles. She is the co-founder and executive director of Cielo. And Odelia, before break, uh, I was talking a little bit more and just had more questions regarding the challenges of indigenous speakers, indigenous language speakers there at the U.S.-Mexico border. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works for some of these families, some of these individuals there that speak neither English or Spanish? Okay, um, of course. Um, well, I'm going to start with saying that 
indigenous people around the world has 80% of the natural resources, and we're we are a population of more or less 10%, according to official data. We could be more. But let's start with that because that is the root cause of our displacement in the case of Mexico, of Guatemala. For example, my state of Oaxaca has 16 of the 68 indigenous languages. We have over 400 mining concessions to transnational companies that are pushing us out. And, and I want to start with that because I want to make sure that our brothers and sisters are, are not listening. We're not here for an American dream. We are running out of, we're being pushed out, and we are here in an order to survive. Nobody gets up and crosses the border in hopes of getting in a trailer and die, right? So our lands are beautiful. We have water, we have mountains, and this is the root of our displacement. And when we go across, from, let's say, Oaxaca, we go across Mexico, there is no interpretation from the Mexican government. Okay. When we get to the border, there is no interpretation from the U.S. or Mexico border. And when we apply for an asylum within an organization, we don't get interpretation. Why? Because there's racism against indigenous people. And one, because there's a confusion or I always say the Latinx relatives are our biggest allies or our biggest enemies because if they notice that we're not conjugating a sentence properly, they have the power to say, I'm not understanding. They might speak in indigenous languages. But as you see, you know, there's a sentiment about us, that sentiment of prejudice and racism that we saw with the LA City County officials not too long ago. That is a common sentiment amongst the Latino. And they are the ones that run the immigrant rights organization, right? So we start with their work. The lack of visibility of indigenous people, the lack of knowledge and the racism plays a big role on us, on us not getting an interpreter. And okay. And Odelia, I'm sorry, but so what, I mean, you share there, there are no interpreters, uh, not only just traveling to the border, but there when they get to the border. So, so what happens to these people? How are they able to advocate? You're not able to advocate. You know, indigenous people from Latin America go through language violence every day. Mm -hmm. We call it language violence. And nobody advocates. Sometimes, like um, the attorney said, you use children. But let me tell you something, you cannot use children. You should not use children because one, that's a violation of their human rights and the family's human rights. But also the trauma, the uh, vicarious trauma that comes with that. But the training, the legal training, these words, asylum, there is no way to say I'm in Zapotec. I have to describe what it is. And if I'm saying, asilo, you're asking for asylum. That person did not understand what asylum is. So they're not able to respond. There's refugiado. You're asking to be a refugee. If I don't know what are the rules or what is a refugee, then I'm not able to to relate that message to that person. Is not able to answer me. Therefore, their chances of getting asylum or get a refugee status is nothing because well, that children is borrowing from Spanish. Okay. And, and Odila, are there a, a large number of Oaxacans who seek asylum in the U.S. that you're familiar with? Not really, because Mexico has a law that, you know, it's very few Oaxacans um, that have been able to get asylum because Mexico is not an enemy country. 
per se. Mm-hmm. So the treatment of indigenous Mexicans is different than if they were indigenous Venezuelans, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it is who, according who that the U.S. thinks is a friend and an enemy. So the enemy country doesn't that have higher access of asylum than a friendly country like Mexico. Okay. Now, Odelia, if I'm not mistaken, um, you you were you are an asylum seeker yourself into the United States. Is that correct? No, no, no. I came here in the early '80s. I'm sorry, in the early uh, '80s. Okay, but I just I'm just curious. So then, what was your experience back in the early '80s um, when you came to the United States? Well, when I came to the United States, the person that brought me spoke my language, but I am too a survivor of family separation. My parents were already here. Um, they had lived here for a long time and I was back home and I was left in the care of my grandparents, my grandmothers, and I survived sexual violence in my community. And when my parents found out, they brought me here. But when they, I come from, my name in Zapotec is the women of the river, the river people. And finally, I come here, I have to adjust to Romero and I go into the Los Angeles uh, Unified District. Nobody knew I spoke another language. Nobody okay. noticed why I was falling behind. Nobody knew. At one point, they thought that I, I only spoke English, so they sent me to an English all class, and I kept on falling behind. To this day, I have to do everything through audio. You know, I have to get my uh, writing uh, checked multiple times because, you know, once you fall behind in elementary school, like a lot of these kids, you know, the chances of you getting a higher education is very limited. But also, like, once you get released from the detention center, they give you a set of instructions that if you don't understand them, you're not going to follow them. That uh, also minimizes your chances of asylum. For me, those kids are the my story of 41 years ago, we were only a few hundreds. Now, there's thousands of Odilias out there not understanding the school district, because once you get released, you are you go to school, you have to follow certain rules, you have to get like a medical exam if you have a, 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 a hearing in immigration court. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, then you minimize your your chances. So language is vital for us to even have the possibility of going to school, you know, thriving in school or getting an asylum. O- Odelia, any idea for about how long uh, a typical person or family will, will stay in a detention center there at the border? Uh, from what, what our experience, it could be from three to six weeks. You know, it, it, it all depends. It really all depends. So a lot of our work has to do with advocacy with the federal government about indigenous people's uh, language um, language access. And we've been able to kind of know more or less Three okay. to probably six weeks, but it's um it's not happening as often as we should as it should for indigenous people to have access to an interpreter and okay. a trained interpreter. Let's go back to Allegra, who's also on our show today, and she is an attorney who specializes in uh, immigration detention. And Allegra, I want to ask you, what is the process uh, for an indigenous person or a family that's in detention? Could be three weeks, could be six weeks. What does it actually take to get them out of that detention center and and just on their own um, towards asylum seeking? Okay, well... I think the important part is even getting to detention at this moment in time is not very likely. Most people are expelled 
from the U.S. border without any opportunity to even ask for asylum. And I would never say that someone who makes it to a detention center is lucky, but once you're in a detention center, you do have the opportunity to ask for asylum, which the vast majority of people who are being turned away from the U.S. border will never get. But once you're in detention, um, I don't believe they're really doing family detention right now. So most of the detention is individual adults. It can be anywhere from one week to uh, years before you're released. Every case is different. One of the challenges that indigenous people face is that one, one way to get out of detention is to pass what's called a credible fear interview, where you explain to an asylum officer what the, um, the, the basis of your asylum claim is, and they then send you to court where you can get a bond because you passed your credible fear interview. Um, as you might imagine, it can sometimes be very difficult for the asylum officer to conduct a credible fear interview when they cannot find appropriate interpretation. And so sometimes our indigenous um, clients languish in detention for no reason except the fact that the governor can't find an interpreter. And that is like, they should just, if they can't find an interpreter once, a person should be released from detention. Detention's optional. There's alternatives to detention. And yet we see time and time again people sitting for weeks and weeks and months while the government tries to, in vain, often find inter- appropriate interpretation for the case. Okay. Now you mentioned the, the credible fear interview. Can you explain exactly what that means, credible fear? It's, it's one way you can start an asylum case. Not everyone does it. Some people do. Again, it is the, the, explaining how asylum works in the U.S. is so difficult right now because everyone, it's being applied differently in different locations to different people, to different nationalities. But one way is that you, you have to explain your case, what's happening, why you are displaced to someone in the federal government, someone in the asylum office, and they make a determination if that fear, the fear of your return back to your home community, is credible. It's, uh, it's, it's not a very high standard to pass, and like um, Odazio was, was saying, we tend to favor certain nationalities in certain situations there, we're like the government appears predisposed to believe people from some countries and disbelieve people from others, but um, it, it's it's impossible to do mm-hmm. if you're not doing it in your in your um, your preferred language. Allegra, earlier you spoke about Title Forty Two and, and just the the drastic impact that it is having on, on so many of these indigenous asylum seekers. And uh, what do you think the future holds there with regard to to Title Forty Two and um, the, the way some of these folks are, are turned away there at the border? Well, the Supreme Court just intervened. Title Title 42 is supposed to be lifted on the 21st of December, and the government was getting ready to receive thousands and thousands of people who have been in motion and waiting for their opportunity to assert their um, claims to come and um, live in the U.S. and and get protection in the U.S. So the the Supreme Court intervened, and they're, they're basically pausing the end of Title 42 to address a procedural question in um, some fairly complicated federal law law 
um, federal um, legal cases. I mean, it reeks of the Supreme Court just making border policy um, because as like an emergency measure to the perceived crisis on the border. But I don't think, if I understand the situation correctly, I don't think we can expect Title 42 to end any time before June of 2023. And so what we're going to see, though, is the same sort of crisis narrative that was happening two weeks ago, where suddenly the government is, oh, my God, there's so many people who want to come in, and now the border's going to be open, and this is a crisis, and we can discriminate people and torture people and cause pain in people because of this crisis. But the thing is, it's like we've gone through this a couple of times, and we know this is going to happen, right? To, to stick with the topic, we know there's going to be a ton of indigenous people at that moment who need interpretation and help getting through this extremely complicated process. My advice to the government is start preparing now. Start getting your resources in order. And okay. that and way, it, when the moment comes, we're not acting like it's a crisis. Well, Allegra, speaking of the, the U.S. government and regarding these resources, do U.S. border officials have obligations to provide translators for indigenous language speakers? Well, yes, but they also have, I mean, when you talk about obligation on the U.S. border, there's what we say we're obligated to do and what actually happens. Like, we're obligated to provide medical care. We're obligated to, you know, keep families intact. So, yes, there is, like, on paper an obligation to conduct communication in a way that a person is going to understand, but it just simply does not happen. And the lack of accountability of what happens inside of those spaces, the lack of attention that nonprofits and legal services have paid to this issue, that has just created a situation where it doesn't happen, but because we have developed this idea of, like, crisis and invasion, we just violate people's rights wholesale in border spaces and treat it like it's collateral damage to like larger national security issues or the like national project of stopping migrants from coming to this country. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Odelia and um, Odelia listening to this discussion today, uh, these challenges facing people there at the U S Mexico border uh, the struggles of folks there in the detention centers, uh, the lack of translators as well. And uh, Odelia, going forward, do you, what do you suggest or what do you see as, as a possible solution or at least a way to alleviate some of these challenges there facing these individuals as well as families at the border? Uh, well, one of the solutions, uh, Cielo is a solution-oriented organization. And one of the things that we have created is trained interpreters. We have a network of 350 interpreters um, from Latin America uh, in the, and as well as the United States. Um, because it is so important for us, it's crucial that the person is trained. Without training, we're not doing a good interpretation. And I say it from myself, from my experience as a child interpreter. So that is one of the solutions we're, we're doing. And the second thing is we're educating different institutions, um, the, uh, especially like um, the, the law enforcement, um, about indigenous people, about the diversity of the language, and that our language is, is not a variant of Spanish. And we're also talking about Title VI, right, uh, in, in, in the hospitals and the social workers, too. 
because like I said, once people integrate in the U.S. Life, um, daily life, you, you have to go to a hospital. You have to you encounter different institutions, and throughout that institutions, your human rights are being violated. So those are the solutions we're doing. We're doing the diversity training across the U.S. We're training our interpreters in some of the languages that we don't have here. Um, you know, we train them back home from wherever they are because uh, being an interpreter here and being an interpreter in Mexico or Guatemala or Bolivia is very different with the rules and regulations here. So we are teaching our interpreters the code of ethics. We created our own code of ethics because the code of ethics in place by the Latinos who created this code of ethics has not the worldview that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Um, Odelia, I'm that, sorry, that, we're going to have to take a break. I'll let you finish when we come back. Folks, stay with us. Really interesting conversation today about asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. Support by Department of Homeland Security. Brandy Bynum, Program Manager, DHS Blue Campaign, has tips to combat human trafficking. On January 11th, wear blue, the international color of human trafficking awareness. To help raise knowledge of this crime, take a photo and then post it on social media using the hashtag WearBlueDay and empower your community to access Blue Campaign's educational resources to stay informed. Learn more about preventing human trafficking at dhs.gov slash bluecampaign. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're exploring the migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border and learning how it affects indigenous people who seek asylum. If you want to get in on the conversation or if you have a question for a guest, call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have Odelia Romero on the line, and she is the co-founder and executive director of Cielo, which is an indigenous women-led nonprofit that serves indigenous populations in Los Angeles. And Odelia, before break, you were talking a little bit about the interpreter training that Cielo provides, as well as educating law enforcement and and some of these other government entities that um, dictate uh, what happens to a lot of these indigenous asylum seekers there at the border. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about those solutions that you shared? Um, okay, so uh, so we created um, uh, our own code of ethics because the code of ethics created by the Spanish-English uh, professionals, uh, colleagues, did not align with uh, our worldview, right? Um, and also one of the things that we had was because like I said earlier, within the Latino movement, there's a lot of prejudice against and racism against indigenous people. We had to create our own indigenous interpreters conference that is coming up this April, where we gather indigenous people where they could share their knowledge with others, but also, you know, share your experience as being an indigenous interpreter. Because in my case, I'm the only one that interprets uh, court, domestic violence, medical, uh, job um labor laws, everything. So we are it because there aren't that many of us. So we train our interpreters every two weeks. We have trainings, free training, so we could professionalize them. And, you know, I have to share this beautiful story, though. Um, There was a woman that was at a detention center who is now working with us as a training interpreter. And she's the few indigenous K'iche' women out here in the U.S. 
And judges are loving her because her level of profession, professionalization is so high, you know. She clarifies. If she doesn't know a word, she raises her hand in a court of law and say, I need clarification. Because mm -hmm. those are the things that you need to advocate and uh, for indigenous people as rights. Because if you don't know a word and you just use Spanish, then that person is not understanding. So for us, you know, one of the things that we're promoting as CLO and we're pushing within our organization and outside is languages of fundamental human right to end language violence against indigenous people. And for that, we have to be very proactive and sit with these law enforcement organizations and educate them and inform them about our existence. Because to begin with, everybody assumes that we're Latinos and nobody knows that we continue to exist. They talk about us as if we were a thing of the past. The Aztecs did, the Zapotecs did, but nobody said that that, that Nahuatl is serving you in a high-end restaurant or that Mije is serving you at a taco stand. Okay. Odelia, thank you for, for sharing that wonderful story. Uh, really powerful and really inspiring as well. We do have another guest on the show. Before we take uh, our, our next guest, introduce him, I do want to take a call right now. We have Sarah, who is listening in Albuquerque on KUNM. Sarah, thanks for calling in today. Yeah, thank you so much, Sean. This is such a great show, and I think it's a topic that most people are not talking about when talking about the border. Um, so my comment was just gratitude to Odelia and all of the interpreters and Allegra and all of the lawyers. I, I volunteer at a shelter at the border, and um, it's real simple. I just help pass out clothes that I collect, you know, donations of food and things like that. But my friend's an interpreter, and I, um, I know it can cause secondary trauma for her to be constantly, you know, interpreting these stories of horrible violence that people have gone through to get here. And so I'm just really grateful to everyone doing that painful work. And it's just a totally unjust situation that people who are making these laws are the descendant of settlers that stole the land and then trying to block people who are indigenous to the land. So, again, just grateful to all of you for lifting this up and for your good work. Sarah, thank you for, for sharing that uh, information there. That's Sarah listening on KUNM, and she's a border shelter volunteer. Let's talk a little bit more about Indigenous interpreters, the training that goes into becoming an Indigenous interpreter, and some of these programs. Joining us now from Ventura, California, is Javier Garcia. He is the Interpreters Program Coordinator for the Mixteco Indigena Community Organizing Project, and he's Mixteco from San Martin Peras from Huslahuaca in Oaxaca, Mexico. Javier, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, good morning. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for having me today. Um, yes, my name is Javier Garcia. I am the Interpreters Program Coordinator here at MICOB. I've been in the organization for uh, uh, four years. Uh, I started as a, you know, promotor. Actually, I started as a youth, uh, uh, you know, working with, uh, um, uh, I was part of the Tech Youth pro uh, Program. Uh, it was, a, you know, a program, you know, for youth, you know, in, in high school, uh, that's where I started volunteering my time. Uh, I started, and then, you know, I, as I got closer, I started working as a promotor. Um, and now, you know, you know, I was started off my way up as an interpreter and I, um, you know, right now been, it's been three years since I started working as, uh, the interpreter's pro program coordinator. Um, a little bit about the, uh, my cop. Uh, or you know, Mixteco Indigena Community Organized Project. It was a um, you know it was founded in 2001, 
uh, with the mission to support and organize and empower the indigenous migrant communities in uh, California Central Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, it was founded by Sandra Young. Um, she was a lifetime social activist and a family nurse practitioner and a, a, a Spanish language student. Uh, she did a study in Oaxaca and experienced the beauty and dignity of the indigenous cultures in Mexico. Uh, later, uh, as a primary uh, care provider in Oxford in the 90s, she saw the hardships and the language barriers faced by the growing indigenous population and felt compelled to act. Uh, you know, since then, uh, you know, it started off with, uh, you know, 20 community members meeting with the, at the public uh, clinic where Ms. Young worked. Uh, you know, they started off bringing, up, bringing in some food to share and discuss the issues that they were that were important and that they were seen in the community. Uh, this resulted in Ms. Young, um, you know, cre creating the nonprofit uh, MICOP, which is a self-governing indigenous okay. migrant organization, also supported by the non-indigenous uh, leaders leaders in, in the community. Uh, okay. To, uh, in the moment, so today. You know, uh, MyCup has grown in a comp comprehensive uh, community-driven okay. organizi uh, organizing project. Uh, you know, the executive himself is uh, part of the uh, indigenous community. Uh, he, he forms part of the 88% of the staff that are indigenous migrants. Um, uh, and today, you know, uh, it has 20-plus programs. Uh, that are focused in the in the uh, okay you know and have, radio station okay how, Javier I'm sorry I, I really appreciate all that background it's it's really helpful really helps us frame today's conversation but let's talk a little bit more about these programs and specifically the interpreter program we both heard uh, Allegra and Odelia talk about the lack of, of, of enough interpreters, indigenous interpreters, excuse me, there at the U.S.-Mexico border. So I'm curious to know um, your program. Uh, what type of training does a person need to become an, an indigenous interpreter? Uh, you know, I, 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 I want to say that, um, you know, our, uh, Odelia, uh, you know, explained it really well. Um, you know, it comes a lot, having to become an interpreter or the trainings that, you know, it's built, it's built of, or an interpreter, what, uh, you know, the, the kind of training that they receive is, um, in my perspective, it takes a lot of determination and courage to be able to take on this kind of uh, type of career, uh, especially because of the, 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 the subjects that you might encounter sometimes, you know, uh, the stages, uh, asylums, uh, the U visa cases, uh, especially if you're uh, focused in uh, the legal uh, area, you're, you're prone to encounter these kind of traumatizing or trauma, you know, uh, subjects where, you know, the lack of, you know, language access is, you know, it's pretty crucial for these families, uh, uh, you know, to find, a, you know, to close that gap for the language uh, or, and find, find a service that they're looking for or what is it that they need. You know, the MyCup has, you know, offered these trainings in the past. Um, you know, we've done, you know, 40-hour trainings or 40-hour-plus trainings. Uh, sometimes we send the interpreters to get, a, like, a small hands-on. Uh, primarily, like, it, it, it could be more like community work, uh, community interpreting, I'm sorry. Uh, they could be interpreting for, uh, you know, food distributions, you know, uh, antibiotic, uh, antibody, you know, clinics, uh, you know kind of get like a, a sense of what is it that they're uh, going to be, uh, uh, you know, encountering. Uh, it's, it's, some, it's a start, you know, for them. Uh, oh, but sure. it is a part of the training. 
uh, as part of the training, besides the, you know, code of ethics, uh, you know, understanding like the cultural uh, awareness from each community, how to close that gap between uh, someone that's, you know, uh, you know, not familiar with that, with the community or the person that they're, uh, they're working with, you would serve as an interpreter, but also like a cultural broker, you know, uh, right, understand, right. understand, yeah. understand the providers, but also, you know, come in, understanding the word of family or the, 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 the the in my way in, in the the family or the the client is coming from, you know, um, you would serve it as as those things, uh, but also continuing your education, you know, the the research, uh, you know, what are the the, the changes inside the interpreters industry that is uh, you know that that are happening um, to better you know improve yourself as an interpreter, but also you know have that empathy or create a, that. Um, um, uh, of a structure okay. that okay. Javier, you know, I, I'm sorry, Javier, I, I really appreciate that phrase you used, cultural broker, because I think so often uh, when we think uh, of interpreters, we, we tend to think of, of, of translation, right? Somebody just translating words into another language. But what you're describing to us today, uh, cultural broker, it very much uh, sounds like a big part of the interpreter's role is to, is to advocate on behalf of, of these clients, these individuals, and these families. And, and I want to ask you, Javier, because we talked earlier about the hundreds of different indigenous languages that are spoken uh, in Mexico and other parts of, of South America, Latin America. And I'm just curious, with, with so many indigenous languages, and there's already uh, a lack of interpreters, how can you possibly... Uh, train and recruit enough interpreters to to handle so many different languages that uh, you might encounter there uh, at the border or there in, in Ventura County where you work. And to be uh, honest with uh, you know being honest in that it would be just you know there isn't uh, uh, a way to recruit everyone. You know, there isn't a way to recruit everyone. We, we could do a calling to every indigenous speaker, but it's it, it, um, to to actually be able to, you know, determine that someone has the capacity to do it, they have to go through that phase first. Uh, you know, it would be the phase of, you know, uh, screening their language. Do they speak uh, dominant? Do they, uh, besides their uh, indigenous language, do they, uh, you know, dominate Spanish or English? So, we could say, you know, we we still see that demand. You know, primarily what we serve right now is the Mixteco, Zapoteco, and Purépecha. Uh, but we've encountered those languages, you know, uh, and where we haven't, you know, uh, uh, been able to meet that or, you know, serve that person or, uh, you know, help that person or organization that, you know, reaching out to us. You know, they're asking us for different languages, you know, uh, and what we do is just refer them refer them to, to other organizations that could ha have that same language or that are also, you know, centered in, uh, you know, uh, providing language services. But to give you an answer, there isn't a way to actually recruit and, you know, meet, uh, you know, uh, you know, solve everyone's uh, uh, problem uh, because we, you know, the lack of indigenous interpreters is, it's, it's so big that uh, there isn't, there's going to be some, uh, times where we can't find someone. Mm -hmm. Javier, the COVID nineteen pandemic did that create any any highly unique challenges there for your interpreters program? 
it kind of uh, at first it started off, you know, uh, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, kind of bumpy. Um, but you know, in the as we started, it's kind of like you know, uh, I know that the our our organization received some funds to you know create a program, which is the COVID nineteen rapid response program. Uh, you know, that kind of took a, a whole lot of the interpretation or the language services. Uh, um, you know, kind of like lay not. I want. I don't. I don't want to say the the work or the job, but the program was. You know, is built off of indigenous speakers, Mixteco and Purépecha. So they, with the way that they, you know, uh, you know, built uh, are working with their program is that they're making visuals, they're making PSAs. In uh, Purépecha and Mixteco, uh, you know, till right now it's a still running program. It's still running. Uh, you know, we have received a, a big response, you know, from the community uh, here in Santa uh, in Ventura County and Santa Barbara County. So the response is there. The need is there. The the, the, the you know the community is uh, you know uh, responding to these uh, the services that the uh, you know MICOP or the the, the Rapture Response Program is is. Uh, is offering so there wasn't a big challenge as far as you know getting the 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 the, the communication the communication was already in there uh because of the interp the, the the language that the you know the the promotores or the outreach specialists were, were already doing they were doing the outreach in spanish they were doing it in Mixteco, they were doing it in purepecha and and you know uh whether it was just you know Interacting with families, uh, you know, at a, at a panaderia or, or uh, uh, you know, at the fields, mm. it wasn't. Uh, they, with the work that they've been doing and still are doing, you know, it, it helped close that. It, it helped the barrier or the language barrier close a small gap. But it's, you know, it's uh, we received a, a huge response from them, and you know, I like I, 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 again, there was a bumpy road. At, at the first, but we still ma we managed to get out of it, or still managing to get out of it. All right, all right. Well, it sure is good to hear that, and uh, that is the end of our hour, folks. We're going to have to wrap it up, but I really appreciate our three guests today: Odelia Romero, Javier Garcia, and Allegra Love, for what's been a timely discussion of challenges facing Indigenous-speaking migrants. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about disparities in the educational system when it comes to disciplining Native American students. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. Support by Department of Homeland Security. Randy Bynum, Program Manager, DHS Blue Campaign, has tips to combat human trafficking. On January 11th, wear blue, the international color of human trafficking awareness. To help raise knowledge of this crime, take a photo and then post it on social media using the hashtag WearBlueDay and empower your community to access Blue Campaign's educational resources to stay informed. Learn more about preventing human trafficking at dhs.gov slash blue campaign. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreement CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.